there may exist a very real supernatural world and you know we may be drawn to it because we're meant to be a part of it maybe what do you mean she didn't trigger somebody's with her that's what you say in the book so are you a universalist who believes that everyone can go to heaven regardless of how they respond to Christ on earth um, intellectual universalism is dangerous thinking that in the end everyone is going to be okay but functional universalism is worse living like in the end everyone is going to be okay heaven or hell on earth no matter what religion you are like accept pe other people's idea okay because have you ever been to heaven have you ever seen it like, it's just not my beliefs that you know a, a just god will make you burn for eternity for something for free will that he gave you is I have no idea. Pretty much. You won't know until you die, will you? Okay, this is the question for you. <laughs> what do you think happens when we die? One of the great preachers of the 20th century was a man named Dr. R.G. Lee. You may or may not have ever heard of Dr. R.G. Lee. He pastored a powerful church in Memphis, Tennessee called Bellevue Baptist Church. And Dr. R.G. Lee was known literally all over the world for his ability to preach and to teach God's Word. And his most famous sermon that he was known everywhere for was a sermon called Payday Someday. Dr. Lee would preach that sermon about God's impending judgment and people knew that sermon everywhere in his day, all over the world. But those who knew him best and who listened to him regularly said that although his most famous sermon was a sermon entitled Payday Someday, his most powerful sermon was when Dr. Lee would preach on the subject of heaven. My dad is a pastor. Some of you have heard him preach here in our church before. My dad, before he began preaching, he would lead music before other preachers would preach. And my dad had the opportunity to lead music in some services where Dr. R.G. Lee preached this powerful sermon on heaven. And when people would, would describe his preaching of heaven, they would say, you just had to be there. He was such an orator and he had such the ability to describe and articulate the biblical language about heaven. People said that when Dr. Lee would preach on the subject of heaven, you literally would feel like you were there. I mean, he would so describe in detail the features of what heaven was going to be like that, that they would say as you would sit in the audience, if you would close your eyes, you just felt like you could almost reach out with your hands and literally touch it as he described it. Well, Dr. Lee reached the end of his life and he was on his deathbed and there in that little room, some close family and friends gathered to be with him as he was dying. And Dr. Lee was kind of drifting in and out of consciousness there in the room. And the people that had gathered there with him were singing hymns of the faith like we sang this morning, How Great Thou Art, and singing songs of heaven. And they were reading scriptures about heaven and reading some of the psalms. And 
Dr. Lee would at some points wake up and begin singing with them, and then at moments he would just slip back off asleep. And they say that as they were in that room and Dr. Lee was there kind of drifting in and out, at one moment, Dr. Lee just sat up and he said, there it is, I see it, and I didn't do it justice. And he closed his eyes and slipped into eternity. Randy Alcorn has written what I believe is the greatest single book on the subject of heaven. We have some available after the service if you're interested in reading more about it. But in Randy Alcorn's book on the subject of heaven, listen to what he says. The sense that we will live forever somewhere has shaped every civilization in human history. Anthropological evidence suggests that every culture has a God-given innate sense of the eternal, that this world is not all there is. Our culture in America is no different than any other culture around the world. We have in our culture a fascination with life after death. This week, for the 45th straight week, the number one book on the New York Times bestseller list under the category of paperback nonfiction is a book that is simply entitled The Proof of Heaven. It's a book that's subtitled A a Neurosurgeon's Journey into the Afterlife. We are fascinated and obsessed with spiritual, supernatural things. Last weekend, as a family of faith, we began a study a series that we've simply entitled The Unknown. We're going to take five weekends in the month of September, and we're going to try to look at what the Bible has to say about some of these questions that many of us have. This weekend, in particular, we're looking at the question, what is heaven going to be like? Now, before we dive into that this morning, I want to give you the same disclaimer I gave you last weekend, all right? If you've come to this series thinking we are going to answer every single one of your questions, you are going to leave disappointed, right? There's no way we can do that for the simple reason uh, we don't know all the answers to all the questions. There's some things about God that are a mystery, but even the things we do know, we could take six or eight weeks and just study on this one subject of heaven and not uncover all that the Bible reveals for us. So I gave you kind of a life application statement last weekend that I want to put back up on the screen, and I want you to read it out loud with me because it's kind of a foundation for us as we walk through this series. Let's read it together. One, two, three. The things we do know provide an unshakable foundation in the midst of things we don't know. So when we finish today, there's still going to be questions that each and every one of us has about heaven, but there are some realities, some truth that we do know about heaven that I hope will provide an unshakable foundation in the midst of things that we still simply don't know. So if you have your Bible, I want you to open to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, we're going to begin reading in verse number 1. It says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. 
In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't even know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I want to use this passage and some others that we're going to turn to in a moment to share with you three things that we know about heaven. Here's the first thing we know. Number one, we know heaven is a real place. Heaven is a real place. Heaven is not fantasy. Heaven is not just some mystery. Heaven is a real, literal place. You say, how do we know that? Well, we know that for a couple of reasons. First of all, we know it because of what Jesus said. Jesus here used some words to describe heaven to us. As a matter of fact, he used three different words to describe heaven. Now, there are times in the Bible where Jesus speaks and he uses figurative language. But in this particular instance, talking about heaven, Jesus is not using figurative language at all. He chooses very concrete, physical terms to describe heaven to us. The first term that I want to mention to you that he uses here, he calls heaven a place. The word place is a Greek word topos. We get an English word from it. It's the word topography, which is the features of a particular area of land. Topography is the study when you're looking and surveying land, you're looking at the specific features, what makes that particular place or spot unique. Jesus uses that very word place to describe heaven. This word place is used in other instances in the New Testament. For example, Sometimes it's used to refer to a definite spot in a city, a district, or a country. At other times, this word is used to describe a particular place where something is done or where something happens. Sometimes this word is used to describe the place or the location where somebody lives. But this word is used exclusively in the Bible to refer to a literal, physical place. A second word that Jesus uses here to describe heaven to us is the word house. He said, in my father's house are many dwelling places. Now, this word house, again, is used many times in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, it's used 73 different times by New Testament authors. Did you know that 70 of the 73 times this word is used, it refers to a literal, physical house? Three times it's used, it refers to a household, meaning people who live in a literal, physical house. The third word that he uses is the word dwelling place. It's two words in our language. It's one word in the Greek language, and it simply means a place to dwell or a place where people live. You say, Pastor, what is your point? Why are you driving this home so strongly? Here's why. Because some people would doubt the reality of a place called heaven. But I want you to understand something. Jesus himself describes heaven as a literal, physical place which really exists. Dr. W.A. Criswell said it this way. There are some who say heaven is a state of mind, a dream, 
an idea, wishful thinking, a sentiment. But Jesus calls it a place. As real as the home in which you live and the city in which you dwell. The words Jesus used. But not only the words that he used, the way that he used them. How many of you have heard before the passage that I read for you out of John 14? Let me see your hand, right? Just about everybody. I I knew that was going to be the case. Most of us have heard this before. The place we hear this most often used is in a funeral setting. Often pastors at funerals will come and they will read John 14 to try to bring comfort to the family in the context of the setting of a funeral. But we all know what that's like, right? When you're at a funeral, it's very calm. It's kind of quiet like it is in here this morning, right? Nobody's moving and the pastor tries to, in a very calm voice, read John 14. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I mean, you've been there, right? You've seen that happen at a funeral city. Did you know that's not at all how Jesus said this? That's not at all the way it came out of his mouth. You've got to understand the context. In John 13, Jesus walks his disciples up into an upper room. In that upper room, Jesus begins to do some very radical things. He starts by washing their feet, and right out of the gate, he's got their attention. They'd never seen this done before by somebody that was considered to be a master. And Jesus is washing their feet, and Jesus begins to unpack for them what's going to happen over the next few days. He talks to them about how he's about to be crucified. He talks to them about how he's about to be beaten, how he's going to be put to death on a cross. He talks to them about how he's going to suffer and die and rise again from the dead. And then just before John 14, 1, Jesus looks at them and says, where I'm going right now, you cannot follow me. Now, you know what their faces look like in this moment? They were terrified, right? I mean, here they'd left everything to follow Jesus. They had forsaken home and family and career. Many of them have left their community. They've packed it all in to follow Christ, and they followed him for three and a half years. They've seen him work miracles. They knew people hated him, and now he's just told them, I'm about to be crucified on a cross, and then I'm going to depart from here, and where I'm going, you can't come right now. I'm going to leave you here. And they're like, you've got to be kidding me, right? Now, Jesus sees this all over their face. So, we get to John 14. It's really like, you know, football season kicked off last week. The NFL kicks off today. Some of you got your DVR going, right? I see the jerseys out there. That's good stuff, right? Kicks off today. If in the first few series of the game, things don't go too well for your team, They've got a plan and a strategy, and they're out there, and everything they're trying is failing. nothing working, and the coach gets them huddled up on the sidelines, and he looks into their eyes, and all of them have that look of panic and fear, like, man, what you told us is not happening. It's not working. Does the coach go, do not let your heart be troubled. (laughs) Believe in our strategy. (laughs) Believe in me. No, what does the coach do? Man, he gets in their face and he says, listen, trust me. Stick to the plan. 
That's John 14. Jesus looks at these disciples and he says, guys, listen, I know I've just dumped a lot of stuff on you. I know right now you're terrified, but listen, trust me. This world's not your home. There's a real place, a literal place that's as real as the house that you came from this morning. And I'm going to make it ready for you. That's the way he communicates it in John 14. We know heaven's real because of what Jesus said and how he said it. But we also know it's real because of what he did. Say, what do you mean? Well, look at verse 3. He said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Now, there's probably not a phrase of Scripture that is more misinterpreted than that particular phrase of Scripture. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And I even read some guys this week who interpreted that phrase the way I'm about to share it with you. But I'm going to tell you, it's not right, okay? But preachers like it because it preaches so good. I mean, it just sounds good. It gets people fired up. And here's the way some people translate that phrase. Jesus said he's going to prepare a place for us. And now for 2,000 years, Jesus has been in heaven getting a place. They say, oh, can you imagine what it's going to be like? I mean, he spoke all the world into existence, all the universe in six days. And now for 2,000 years, he, and they describe him like he's Bob the Builder running around up there in heaven. He's got a hammer and a saw, and man, he's just getting things ready for us, Right? That's not at all what Jesus meant when he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Let me tell you what he meant. Again, where were they? In the upper room. They would leave this room and go to a garden. In that garden, Jesus would cry out to the Father, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But not what I want, God, what you want. Soldiers would come into that garden. And soldiers would run Jesus through a series of mock trials, 11 of them in one night. Then those same soldiers would beat him and torture him. And those same soldiers would take him out and they would nail him to a cross for the sins of the world. And just before Jesus died, his last words were what? It is, say it, finished. What was finished? Here's what was finished. All the preparation that needed to be done for you and I to have a place reserved in heaven. When Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, he wasn't talking about a hammer and nails up in heaven working himself to death. When Jesus said, I go to prepare a place, he was talking about the cross. And here were those disciples gathered there, many, some of them watching even as he was crucified. And can you imagine the joy in their heart as they heard Jesus say, it is finished. Heaven is prepared for you. We know heaven is a real place. Let me tell you the second thing we know. We know some things that will not be in heaven. We know some things that will not be in heaven. Now, maybe you came today expecting me to tell you what was going to be in heaven. Well, I want to do that by telling you some things that are not going to be in heaven. 
There's probably not a more qualified person who ever lived on planet earth to write about heaven than John, who we just read uh, in John 14, the gospel that he wrote. We read his words describing what Jesus said to him about heaven. So he literally heard this promise with his own ears. He saw the crucifixion with his own eyes. He was the only disciple who was there at the foot of the cross with Jesus' mother as as he was crucified and cried out, it is finished. John witnessed the the, the burial of Jesus. John witnessed, he was one of the first at the tomb to give testimony about the resurrection of Jesus. John saw it and heard it with his own eyes and ears. But not only that, John, late in his life, in his 90s, God visited John through an angel, and God opened John's eyes So that John could see into heaven and God told John, John, I want you to write down what you see so that all of us could have an idea what heaven's going to be like when we get there. That's mighty gracious of God to do that, don't you think? Where is that found in the Bible? Turn over to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. Look at verse 1. I'll put it up on the screen. It says, John says, (coughs) same author of the gospel of John, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, we don't really have time to talk about this this morning. You've got to study this on your own. But when John's describing this holy city, here's what's awesome. It's just the tip of the iceberg. He's just describing the city that is the centerpiece of the new heaven, that is the centerpiece of the new heavens and the new earth. And we get to dwell in all of that for all eternity as followers of Christ. How do we get from one place to another? you got to figure all that on your own, right? I'm not going to give you all that this morning, but that's what he's describing here is that centerpiece. Look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any, any death, and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. So what we have here is John writing because God said, Write it down. God says, Write. What do you do? You write, right? You write. John's looking into heaven, and he's writing it down for us to see. And and some of the things he describes... Look, pick it up in verse 10. Look at verse 10. It says, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. He begins to describe this scene of heaven. And this morning, what we could have done is taken each of those things and kind of unpack those, what they were going to look like. But, but we're not going to do that this morning. I mean, there's a bunch of them in here. For example, if you read on down, he said that just the city, all right, not the whole heaven and not the whole new heavens and new earth, but just the holy city, which is the centerpiece of heaven. He says a little bit later on in this chapter, 
It's 1,500 miles this way. It's 1,500 miles this way. And it's 1,500 miles this way. Let me give you an idea of what that means. It's a city that would stretch from Las Vegas, Nevada to Little Rock, Arkansas this way. It would stretch from San Antonio, Texas to Canada this way. And I don't even know what the 1,500 miles this way means. I don't know if it's like a another dimension. I don't even know what that means. But we're talking about this massive centerpiece that God has built. And he tells us that this city has 12 gates, three gates to the north, south, east, and west. And he tells us that these gates are made of pearl. Now, how many of you heard of the pearly gates before, right? Oh, you've heard all the jokes, right, about Peter at the pearly gates. When I hear those things, I've always thought of the pearly gates as like these gates that were strands of pearls. You know, that's not what he says here. He says that the gates are literally a massive pearl, 12 massive pearls that are the gates to this 1,500 mile wide and long city that is the centerpiece of the new heavens, that is the centerpiece of the new earth where we get to exist for all eternity. Then he tells us that the streets in heaven are made of gold. That in and of itself is interesting. What do we pave our streets with in America? Asphalt, right? Why? You know why, right? Because asphalt is the cheapest, basest material that we can use to do the job. You know why we do it that way? Because if we put anything of value in the street, you know what's happening after dark, right? Yeah, we'd see you out there with your little axe, and we'd all be out there chunking up our piece of the street and taking it home with us, right? If it had any, but it's asphalt. It's meaningless. It's valueless. Now translate that into heaven. He's telling us something about the economics of heaven. It's totally different than here. They paved the streets with gold. We're not going to talk about any of that this morning, all right? Because as you read Revelation 21, and I was reading it this week, something struck me that I'd never noticed before. There are six times that John says something will not be in heaven. And every one of those things teaches us something. So I want to mention as many of them as we have time for. Revelation 21, look at verse 1 first. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is, read it out loud, no longer any sea. Now the first time I read that, that struck me odd. I'll be honest with you. Let me tell you why it struck me odd. As you read on in the chapter, there's some stuff that I think would have caught my attention before that. I mean, if he opened up heaven and I saw streets of gold, that'd probably been in verse 1, right? I mean, I'd have put that in verse 1. Or, or gates of pearl, that, that'd make verse 1, right? I mean, that, that should be. But yet John, the first thing he says is, I open my eyes, there's new heaven and new earth. There's no longer any sea. Why would John write that first? Let me tell you, I think I know why. Again, you've you got to know where he was when he wrote it. John was the only one of the disciples who wasn't murdered for his faith in Jesus. All the other disciples were executed because of preaching the gospel. John was not executed. He was exiled. The government took him to an island called Patmos. And they dropped him off on that island. And they abandoned him and left him there to die as an old man. The the island of Patmos was 10 miles wide at its widest point. 
six miles long at its longest point. On any day, John could walk the length of that island. And I'm sure there are days John would go and he would stand right at the edge of the shoreline as the waves were just coming in on his feet. And he would stand there and he would look. As far as John could see, all he could see was the sea. And I'm sure there were moments as John stood there that he would think about what's going on on the other side of that sea. It's breakfast time. I'm sure my family's stirring around the house. My friends are getting ready to go start their day. Maybe in the evening he would stand there and he would look and he would imagine in his mind the smell of fresh bread that had been baked as the family was sitting down to the evening meal. But John could only dream about those things because he was separated from everybody he loved because of the sea. To John, the sea meant those that I love, I can't be with. God comes to John, says, John, I want you to take a look at what heaven's going to be like. And he peels back the curtain. And John says, I see a new heaven and a new earth. And glory to God. There's no longer any sea. Here's what John meant by that. John meant, I'm no longer separated from those I love in Christ. I love the way Jonathan Edwards writes about it. Jonathan Edwards says it this way. Look at this quote on the screen. Every Christian friend that goes before us from this world is a ransomed spirit waiting to welcome us into heaven. There the Christian father and mother and wife and child and friend with whom we shall renew the holy fellowship of the saints, which was interrupted by death here, but shall be commenced again in the upper sanctuary and then shall never end. There we shall have companionship with the patriarchs and the fathers and the saints of the Old Testament and the New Testament and those of whom the world was not Worthy. Here's the first thing that that tells us about heaven. Heaven is a place of being together. I love being with God's people. Can you imagine what it's going to be like in eternity when we get reunited with those that we've loved? One of the things that, you know, when you plant a church, I never thought about this, but one of the things when you plant a church as the years roll on, you begin to help populate heaven through your church. People that God saves and redeems and become a part of the fellowship, they die. And there's now a little hope pocket up there in heaven. A little group of people that have come to know Christ, been discipled, and they're beginning to populate heaven. And man, we long to be with them again. One day we'll be reunited and we'll be able to rejoice with them. But not just with them and not just with those we knew here. We'll get to sit down with Peter and with Paul. We'll get to sit down with Moses and with Elijah and with Abraham. We'll be together with every saint of all the ages. Why? Because there's no longer any sea. 
Let me show you the second one. Revelation 21, verse 4. Look at verse 4. And he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. That's a good place to say amen. Amen. That's all gone. What is all that talking about? Do you know that the Bible from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation tells one story? Now, there are a whole lot of stories in the Bible, but all of those stories are simply the way God is telling us one big story. And you know what the one big story is? God is redeeming that which we lost because of sin. The whole story of the Bible is a great love story of a redeeming God who loves us so much that he's redeeming that which we lost. In the Garden of Eden, God created the world. God created the garden. God created Adam and Eve, placed them in the garden, and they had a unique ability to fellowship with God. But in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve chose to sin against God. And when humanity sinned against God, it brought into the world the curse of sin. The first part of that curse is death to our relationship with God. Adam and Eve died spiritually in the garden, and they lost the ability to have fellowship with God. But not just physical death or spiritual death. Ultimately, it meant that they were going to die physically. God didn't create Adam and Eve to die. But because sin entered the world, death became a very real part of the human experience. How many of you know that death is a real part of the human experience? Every one of us have been to funeral homes and and funeral services more than we ever wanted to go to in our life. Death is a reality of life. God didn't create it that way. Sin brought death into the world. And with death, sin brought disease. Sin brought destruction. Sin brought heartache. Sin brought tragedy. Sin brought all these things the Bible mentions here, mourning and crying and pain. We live a life on earth that is filled with sorrow. One of the the most difficult parts of the job of being a pastor is the reality of human suffering and sorrow. Just this week, just in the last seven days, Two people inside our own fellowship went home to be with the Lord. Just in the last seven days, two people contacted me and said, Pastor, we've been to the doctor and we've gotten a diagnosis. Things do not look good barring a miracle. I'm not going to live very much longer. Just in the last seven days, we've had a couple of phone calls of people in our fellowship who are in, whose life is coming to an end in the next few weeks. They're right at the end of life. Just in the last week, we've had three or four families contact us about their marriage relationship and how it's crumbling and falling apart. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. We live in a world that is broken. And it is a world that is broken because of sin. But here is the glorious good news. We have a God who loves us and who is redeeming unto himself a people. And the whole story of the Bible is the great redemption story of God. And John was enabled to be able to see into heaven. And John said, glory, there's no more death. The curse is gone. Glory, there's no more mourning. There's no more crying. There's no more pain. John even said it this way. He said, he shall wipe away every tear from their 
eyes. It literally means that he will remove every sorrow that goes with being a human being. Heaven is a place of unending joy. How did that happen? Let me show you. Galatians chapter 3 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. It's the curse of sin that came into the world. Christ redeemed us. How? Having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. You see, here's what Jesus did on the cross. That wasn't no little symbolic moment. Let me tell you what happened on the cross. Jesus took all of the sin of the world, all of my sin and all of your sin, all of the curse of sin, all of the penalty of sin, all of the wrath of God against sin. Jesus took it all on himself. And on the cross, he died, setting us free from the curse of sin. So that in heaven, we can now be removed from sin's curse, and enjoy a place of unending joy. Let me show you the third one. Revelation 21, look at verse 22 and 23. We'll take these two together because they kind of communicate the same thing. He said, I saw no temple in it. No temple in heaven. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. No temple. And he doesn't say there'll be no sun or moon. He just says, you don't really need it. It's not necessary like it is today. The temple. What was the temple? The temple was the place that God had established in the Old Testament that would be the place of his presence among his people where his people could come and be in his presence. As a matter of fact, when Solomon built the temple and they dedicated the temple, the book of 1 Kings, listen to what the Bible says in 1 Kings 8, verse 10. It says, It happened that when the priests came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Here's what John's saying about heaven. We don't need a temple there. Why? We don't need a temple because God's manifest presence in heaven is so glorious, there's no need for a temple. His presence is so glorious, there's no need for a sun or moon. The glory of God illumines all of heaven because his presence is so real. So here's what that tells us about heaven. Let me give it to you in a statement. Heaven will be a place filled with God's presence. Heaven will be a place filled with God's presence. Now, let me ask you a question if you're a Christian. I don't want you to answer out loud, but how many of you have ever been in a situation where you were overwhelmed by the presence of God? I mean, just maybe it was in a worship service. Maybe it was in a gathering of believers. Maybe it was on a mission trip to some other part of the world. Maybe it was another experience or event. But you just, the presence of God was so overwhelming. And the joy and the fullness of the presence of God. How many of you, how many of you know what that is to be in the presence of God? Listen, here's what he says about heaven. It's always like that. Those aren't just a few random moments where God visits us and manifests. He says in heaven, it's like that 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year for all eternity. It's filled with God's presence. Look at the, look at the next one, John 20, excuse me, Revelation 21, 25. We won't spend much time here, but he says in the daytime, for there will be 
no night there, its gates will never be closed. Now, when I first read that, I got to be honest with you, I was a little disappointed. I like to sleep. (laughs) And I thought, man, I sure don't like to sleep when there's daylight out. And then I understood he's not here saying literally that there'll be no night, or at least we don't know. We, We don't know for sure if it's literal or not here. But the way he packaged it, he said, because there's no night, they don't ever have to lock the gates. How many of you lock your doors at night? We, we don't lock them a lot during the daytime. I mean, if you're doing that, you may need to sit down with somebody, all right? If you're, if you're that paranoid that you're locking them all day, every day. But at night, we make sure, we go around and make sure all the doors are locked. Why? Because nighttime often represents crime. Evil, wickedness. John says, heaven is a place of security. We don't ever lock the gates. There's no night there. There's no season where it's dangerous. There's no time when we have to worry. We don't lock Those big pearls, they're just grandeur. They're just for look. We don't have to lock them up. It's safety. It's security in heaven. Look at the next one. Revelation 21, verse 27. I love this one. He says, and nothing unclean. It means nothing defiled. He goes on to describe it. No one who practices abomination lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. But I love that phrase, nothing unclean. Here's the way it spoke to me this week. I don't know about you, but as a Christian, I want to please God. I want my life to honor him. I want to I want to I want my life to bring glory to the name of Jesus. But, but, but I, if I'm going to be real honest with you, some days I get tired of the struggle. You see, I, I want to please Jesus, but I'd be lying to you if I didn't tell you that I have an old wicked flesh that loves the things of this world. And any Christian that tells you they don't struggle with stuff, they're lying. They're not being honest with you. Every one of us, at some level, in some area, we have struggles. And it's those very struggles that keep us at the feet of Jesus. And, and, and I, I get so tired of the things that my flesh longs for. And I, I, even before God, some days I'm embarrassed over the, the, the wickedness of my own heart. Every one of us has to wrestle with those things. We're just like Paul in Romans 7 when Paul said, the wishing to do good, God, is present within me. But God, so often, the doing of good is not. But as Paul got to the end of Romans 7, he said, thanks be to God who gives us victory in Jesus. And here's what John saw in heaven. No more flesh. No more sin nature. No more unclean thing. No more temptation. No more ungodliness. We will forever be in a place of purity. Christian, that struggle that is for so long gripped you. That struggle that is for so long defeated you. Here's what John says about heaven. Gone. Gone. It's a place of purity. Well, let me tell you the last thing we know about heaven. We, we know it's real. We know some things that will not be in heaven. We've talked about those. Here's the last thing. We know who will be in heaven. We know who will be in heaven. First of all, there will be angels in heaven. 
The Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 5, John writes and he says, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the number was myriads of myriads. John says in heaven there's a countless number of angels worshiping God. But heaven's not just a place where there are angels. Heaven's also a place where there's people. There'll be people in heaven. Aren't you glad of that this morning? That this place we've been talking about, people get to go to heaven? ABC News did a poll, and they asked Americans if they thought they were going to go to heaven. Look at this on the screen. According to ABC News poll, 75% of all Americans believe they will go to heaven. I want you to think about that. And I want you to contrast it with what Jesus said. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Now, If we hang our hats on ABC News and their poll, the majority of Americans, and I'm sure if you did the survey in countries all over the world, it'd be the same, are going to heaven. If we take what Jesus said, Jesus said the many will not, but the few will. You say, well, that raises a pretty important question. How do you know how to get to heaven? Did you know that's exactly what Thomas asked Jesus in John 14 when Jesus described heaven? Jesus described heaven, and I want you to look back at it. John chapter 14, verse 5, Thomas said, Lord... We don't even know where it is, much less how to get there, right? Thomas is basically saying, Lord, I get this. You're about to leave, and there's a place, but hey, how do we get there? And Jesus didn't mince any words about how you get there. He said, Thomas, I am the way. I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus made it very plain. Church is not the way to heaven. Religion is not the way to heaven. Morality is not the way to heaven. Good works are not the way to heaven. The only way to heaven is Jesus. A personal relationship 
with Jesus, where I come to the place in my life where I realize my sinfulness in the presence of God, and I realize that God loves me so much that he's redeeming me through his son Jesus, and I surrender the control of my life to Jesus. I turn from my way, and I trust Jesus. The Bible word for that is repentance, turning from my sin and trusting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of my life. Jesus said that and all only that. A lot of people have the idea that heaven is kind of like any place you would think of, right? Like I, two weeks ago, I took my son to college over in Jackson, Tennessee. Jackson, Tennessee, uh, we decided we'd get there. It's 1,700 miles from here. We, we decided we would drive down the highway 93, 95, take us down to Kingman on King Kingman, Arizona. We'd jump on I-40 and we would drive about 1,600 miles across the United States of America on I-40. You take it all the way, and you can get right off I-40. There's an exit right into Jackson. Just off the interstate there is where my son's in college. That's a way to get to Jackson. But there are other ways. You could drive down here to Las Vegas, McCarran International Airport, get on an airplane and take a three-hour nap, wake up in Memphis, Tennessee, rent you a car and drive Highway 64 and be right there in Jackson, Tennessee. You could do it, and by this evening, you could be there. If you're going to drive I-40, you can't be there by this evening unless you're going to drive. But you can get there other ways. A lot of people think heaven's like that. Well, as long as we're sincere in what we believe, you can believe in this God or that God. You can follow the teachings of this church or that church. And listen, all that sounds really good. But the reality is you can be sincere and you can be sincerely wrong. Now, we all know that. If Jesus had said, Thomas, I am away. But that's not what he said. He said, Thomas, I'm the way. And that is a very important, definite article. The. The way. Here's what John's saying. Here's what Jesus is saying. Every person who knows Jesus enters eternity in heaven. But, but in closing, there's one more person who's going to be in heaven, and i got to tell you about him. You see, it's not just going to be angels in heaven. There's not just going to be people who know Jesus in heaven. The best part about heaven, <laughs> Jesus is in heaven. He said to them in John 14 that where I am, there you will be also. Listen, we now live by faith as Christians. One day we will live by sight. We will see Jesus in heaven. And listen to me. That's what makes it heaven. It's taking our relationship with Jesus to a whole nother level. Listen to this quote by Joni Erickson Tata, and I'll finish. She said, Jesus, who is at the very center of heaven, is what makes it exciting to me. We have something like a homing detector in our hearts, and it's just not ringing for earth.
It's ringing for him in whom our deepest longings will be answered. So heaven, it's not just a place. It's a person. That individual for whom we were made.